From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome everybody to episode 107 of the Killing It podcast. This is Carl. I'm joined today by Dave and Ryan as always on a, for us anyway, for me, super bright, sunny day. Uh, I actually did quite a bit of yard work over the weekend. And so now I'm ready to sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. The weather is good. Ah, crap. The weather is good. I gotta, I gotta go. See, we, I will say Seattle, Washington, 65 degrees today, bright blue sunshine with a forecast for later this week of 77 degrees. People up here do not know what to do with themselves. <laughs> we had a nice weekend. It's rainy today, but it like, but you know, I need a little bit of that because it's been really warm for a couple of days and we're, we're definitely in that nice spring. I feel for our European friends with like, I mean, the UK had snow. Like, yeah, yeah, like, it, like that. It's April. What is going on? I'm, I'm opening up, and I'm happy about it in terms of weather. And this is making a huge difference on my mood. So <laughs> in Sacramento, it was 85 over the weekend. It, which it's a little early for 85. So people are like, oh, it's so hot. You're like, well, wait a minute. Two months from now, you're gonna say, oh, it's only 85. I should hurry out there and get my work done. See, that's a that's a very Seattle thing. I cannot wait until it finally gets warm. And then when it does, people are like, it's so hot. I wish it would cool down. Like my answer is pick a temperature that you think is ideal and then enjoy it when it happens. I'm thinking nobody needs to live in 95 degrees anymore. I went to school in Arizona. I understand what that's like. I choose not to do that. I think, you know, 78 to 82. That's that's almost ideal. You just, you know, it's like the places in the world where it is that temperature all the time. Other people already discovered them and therefore real estate prices are radically higher there and uh, you can't afford to to move into those places. So <laughs> people people pay for weather. It's a feature. <laughs> that's why people stay in California. It's true. It's totally true. Like it's got it's got great weather. So that's one of the one of its key features. Exactly. So what are we up to today? By the way, just a note, everybody needs to go make sure that you tell all your friends to subscribe to us on Apple uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, you know, Podcatcher, whatever you've got. Make Spotify, sure you Google, whatever your platform, go make sure to, to, to spread the word a little bit. We are looking to continue to grow the show and your word of mouth recommendation is the best way to help grow it. If you like what we're doing, please tell a colleague. This week, we are sponsored by our friends over at PCmatic. PCmatic is endpoint security built on a zero trust philosophy, allowing only trusted applications and blocking all the rest. Lightweight, simple to deploy, easy to manage. Find out about PCmatic's unique lead sharing program for MSPs backed by a prime time national TV campaign. Together, we bring advanced security solutions combined with more than sales enablement. We bring actual leads. Find out more about PCmatic by visiting pcmatic.com slash MSP. All righty. Well, our first topic today is about best practices. And uh, in fact, we have an article from The Next Web. And it's really about 
I think what constitutes best practices. You know, a lot of people, uh, what they think of is uh, best practice is really just the way most people do stuff. And <laughs> that's kind of mediocre practices, actually. Um, and so the, the question is, is the term best practices even relevant anymore, right? Or is it simply uh, that there's lots of ways to do things? You know, when, when you think about, for example, uh, the way that we run our business, you might run your business exactly opposite of that and yet still be very successful. So there is no longer one answer for everybody. I don't know that there ever was. Well, let me, so let me take a quick moment and differentiate between the uh, like definition of a researched best practice versus its common usage. There is an actual systematic way of researching and proving what top performers do and defining that as a best practice through quantitative research. That is different than how it is normally used, meaning somebody's opinion of what works for them. <laughs> there is a big difference between the two. The first bucket doesn't happen a lot. There aren't a ton of research studies that actually prove out best practices. There's tons of consultants or people out there with ideas that will tell you what a best practice is or vendors that will sell you with a best practice idea that of just some guy's opinion about what worked. What I loved about the first off, you got to watch out for that, right? Just because somebody says it's a best practice does not mean it's actually is. It could just be their opinion. Uh, and you know what they say about opinions. But what I'm more interested about this is, is that the idea of embracing experimentation is where I really took to this article, was the idea of, look, your job is not just to always assume I'm going to keep doing what is a best practice and always works. Your job actually is to figure out where things are going, and that may mean breaking, quote unquote, a best practice. And the only way you know that is if you're trying stuff and experimenting. See, Dave, you're 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 touching on what has been a pet peeve of mine for about 25 years, right? Many years ago, I was taught by uh, the people who run very large global consulting entities the principle of best practice and the brand value of being able to tell people we don't just randomly muck around and try to figure it out as we go. We've been there. We've done that. We're going to execute with precision. It is the basic ability to deliver on an SLA, which is something in our industry that we all take very, very seriously. However, exactly where you're going on one level, just because everybody does it that way doesn't make it a best practice. It makes it a common practice. By definition, a best practice is rare. You know that old thing, four out of five dentists surveyed, do it this way? Well, that's not the best way. That's the most frequent way. The one out of five dentists who does it differently and achieves a differentiated, better result, that is what we mean by best. I believe, and, and this is going to hit close to the heart of our industry here, there has been a very large movement around standardization, and validation of platforms and configurations. And we do things the way we do them around here because variation is the mother of chaos. Yeah, except that standardization by definition is also the enemy of progress. 
I tend to think of it as experimentation is the mandatory precursor to innovation. You have to do it wrong before you can learn to do it better. <laughs> well, I would also, you have to do it wrong. Like it's it's uh, not valued enough. The actually doing it wrong sometimes is important. That you have yeah. to like learn from that experience. But I would point out, you know, Dave, when you mentioned like look at the the big players and so forth. Uh, first of all. You know, it's estimated that about 50% of the S&P 500 will turn over in the next 10 years. So the people who are the big successful players today are not necessarily going to be the big successful players in the future. Also, some of the biggest companies you know, let me just, without naming names, say, you know, Comcast and AT&T, um, suck at customer service. So <laughs> yeah. just being big doesn't make them good at what they do. Well, uh, and you know, so... So size is a factor, but it's not the factor. Well, you're, you're correct, right? And because, again, if there are two of us in our small little boutique firm and we need to standardize the way that you do it and I do it, okay, cool. That's probably going to increase our efficiencies. When there are 2,000 agents that you're trying to get to do everything exactly the same way, that's a lowest common denominator conversation. You're, you're not going to go to the best because all 2,000 of those agents are not capable of executing at the very best level, you're going to write a policy, a standard approach that says, well, let's get to the ish mid-ground and try to get as many of our people to standardize as possible. See, but this is where I take it to uh, that next extension of your argument, Carl. If you would like to compete against an incumbent in the marketplace, the best way to compete is not to say, I do it exactly the way they do it, hire me instead of them. The better way to compete is to say, I do things completely differently than that established legacy leader. That's why you should hire me. Our, again, our industry has a ton of, in the previous world, large conferences where people would go and sit in a room and listen to be told how to use the software to do standard things in exactly the same way that everybody else does that. Well, that's just begging for market-based competition. If, if what you're saying to the customer is, I use the same PSA, the same RMM, the same tools platform as everybody else, and I use it in exactly the same way everybody else uses it, my answer is, yo, me too, 5% cheaper, and I'm going to steal away your entire install base. Like, you, you must do something different, or else you are, by definition, a commodity. Well, I, I remind people of uh, Og Mandino's book, The Greatest Secret in the World. Uh, the, the greatest secret is almost nobody puts out the effort to try even just to be a tiny bit better than the competition. <laughs> so if you try just a tiny bit, you'll probably be better than your competition. Well, right. And by the way, being better than your competition is not going to be doing the same thing they're doing. Like, like right. And I think that's the key element of this is, is unless you're experimenting and finding different ways of doing things that literally by the de exact definition are not necessarily best practices because you're doing something different than everybody else. If your goal is just to build a best practice business that does the same as everything else, uh, then you are not different then you are just not standing out. So you have to be doing these things that are different from somebody else. You are therefore violating a best practice. That's okay. 
absolutely true. Let's let's violate a best practice and and move to our next topic here that is about a completely different part of the industry. No segue gracefulness here at all. Uh, the topic that we're going to move to for number two here is about the recent announcement that uh, our friends at Ingram Micro bought the Harmony Business Systems PSA tool vendor. And they did this a few months ago and just recently have made this known. Uh, during the pandemic, they went out and acquired a PSA vendor. Now, in the past, this panel, we have discussed the idea of why are PSAs an independent tool set? Why wouldn't they be integrated with either, you know, the chipset like like Intel does or another mainline networking vendor with their systems administration tools? There are a lot of other things, and yet PSA seems to be treated as though it's different here. The, the articles that we're going to link to in the show notes, one of them, I think, includes a critical point here. It's not that they are expecting any managed service provider to switch from one PSA platform to another as a competitive win. What they're looking to is the part of the industry that does not yet do managed services, and then they will position themselves as a master MSP for which somebody who sells products could now be an agent. I think this is a very interesting strategy. What say you gentlemen? Well, I gotta say, uh, to me, uh, it's just a matter of time before a salesperson realizes, oh, I can get commission if I push our PSA versus saying, oh, just use whatever PSA you have. I mean, you know, I mean, let's be honest. They're trying to say, come to us for the cloud, come to us for all of the pieces that you sell, hardware, software, services, and running your internal operations. It makes sense, although at some point, I think, to me anyway, there's got to be a limit to this getting everything in one big package and, and buying into the stack. A lot of people don't want to buy into the stack because they want best in breed. And what are the chances that that PSA is best in breed? Well, but it's also just off, literally coming off of a statement where if everyone's using the same practices, <laughs> you all look the same. We literally just covered all of that. So I am, I'm going to go with I'm intrigued, right? And so, so the... The value add of a distributor offering the business platform does actually make a little bit of sense to me. That if you think through the idea of distributions trying to add some additional value, they literally are the people that are helping manage some of the back end of procurement. If you are then integrated with them from this, like I can see it, right? Like I can see all of the, the sense that this makes. And if I could potentially offer more of my services through that, particularly if I am a more transactional style partner anyway, this makes sense to me. Uh, where the disconnect for me happens is, is I spend a lot of time thinking about like customer experience and way to deliver a new forward thinking way of my delivering my services out to the world. and running on a PSA is like so antiquated to me, the way that I think about that in terms of the tool, because it's just such a, it's, it's not that tool. It's not a tool that truly creates a great customer experience that is focused on the customer and delivering communication. It's, it's just not that. Um, that doesn't mean it can't be, but that's not the space that it has traditionally occupied. So that that's the disconnect for me, right? I, I think Ryan, where you were going on this, like, okay, if you are, 
in that transactional world and want a better way of doing it, like, yep, I get it. That market makes sense. If you are well ahead of that, yeah, I don't think this makes a ton of sense for I, you. I do have to question, like, the wisdom of having your distributor, your supplier, know that they can look into your PSA and know what your contracts are, what your revenue is, you know, what your cash flow is, how, what you're selling and not selling. I mean, are is there going to be a nice little uh, firewall there where they can't ever get access to that data? Or is there a tiny little box hidden on page 32 of the contract that says, oh, by the way, we're going to be looking at your stuff. You see, and I think I, I think that's where it goes to, right? Because I, I think, Dave, to to take your argument to where where I was going, if you already have homegrown and invested in the integration to bring together all of these tool sets to deliver whatever you call best in class managed services to your clients, if that's what you've done. The switching cost to unplug and disintegrate one of those tools and replace it with something like this makes no sense at all. However, if you are just about to get into the business of managed services and you have not yet invested all of those hours to deploy the tool and standardize and integrate and get all of that going and you can just buy an integrated stack that you just turn on day one and it, and it functions all the way through, if you could take all of those hours you would have spent integrating these systems and invest them instead in a acquiring new customers and b figuring out the actual relationship and adoption and expansion parts of your service offering i think that's a brilliant trade-off but to your point carl it fundamentally requires trust in a business relationship that says if you are the master agent and i am the local agent I have to believe, A, that you're not going to compete with me, and B, that you will always make decisions that are designed to make me, the agent, more successful. Now, ask yourself a question. Those two things that I just described in a trusted business relationship, insert the name of your favorite distributor. Do you believe that that is the relationship you presently have with that distributor? Because if you do, you're probably pretty large and you got a pretty special relationship. But if you're like most people in the industry, we tend to not have deep trusted relationships with distribution. That's where distribution needs to enhance their offering. Not some, I mean, it's, I think the software, cool. That's the easy part. It's getting all of those solution providers who buy through distribution to trust that they are here to help and not to compete against you. That's the hard part. There's, I mean, there's an opportunity here. Like I wanna, I wanna spin it the other way. It says, look, look, if you're adding significant value um, to the relationship, particularly by investing in tools, I mean, I can, when you're an organization like Ingram, you have, I don't know, lots of cash. Like you have the one ability to like invest, you could, go all in on a platform like this and truly light it on fire in terms of accelerating where it's going. I can see that, I mean, they're, they're a big mature organization that can spend money on this. I can see the opportunity. I don't wanna be dismissive of that. It requires them to potentially behave in a way that is slightly different than their normal way of operation. That distribution is looking for new ways to go they are looking for new forward ways of of behaving 
the pieces are all there. Now it's their job to, to execute. Well, and let's not forget the context of the last 10 years. Distributors are having more and more trouble making money off of what they've historically made money off of, which is moving big boxes because people are buying fewer servers. Uh, data centers are buying direct. They don't need a distributor. And so you have, I, I imagine, this internal conflict where people are saying, hey, this is a new cash cow that we've got over here. And other people saying, no, we're protecting what has always made us money, server, server, servers. So you can kind of see this whole uh, Kodak internal uh, problem going on where some people want to protect a, a dying industry that has always been their cash cow. Absolutely true, because that that product transaction moving physical devices from point A to point B, that that's never going to go away because we're never going to get 100% cloud adoption, but it will diminish to the point where, I mean, we see all of this consolidation going on in the distribution space. That's not an accident. That That's happening for a reason. That's going to accelerate, and they need to find a new place to compete and add value. I think this is a valid offering if they're targeting the right audience, which is not currently MSPs. Well, we are out of time on that one, but I want to want to move us into something that is distinctly forward looking as we talk about the ideas of moving forward. I'm going to highlight on Microsoft, who has started uh, submerging their servers in liquid to improve the performance and energy efficiency. The idea is, is to take racks of servers and put them into what looks like a liquid bath. Uh, this is something that is not necessarily new in the industry, but Microsoft is claiming they're the first cloud provider that is running a two-phase immersion cooling in a production environment. The way it works, they submerge server racks into a specifically designed non-conductive fluid. You can't just put this in water, everyone. <laughs> it then has, it has a much lower boiling point. It is able to remove the heat. It then, you know, uh, reaches the, the lower boiling point, condenses, falls back into his, as a rain, and creates a closed-loop system. It's a big bathtub, and in a way, their next step, after some of the coverage we've done about talking about putting servers at the bottom of the ocean. Guys, is the, is the future uh, putting servers underwater in all senses? I love this. First of all, it's just a fun toy, right? But, you know, an interesting twist. The liquid, the kind of liquid that they're using was developed, and I, I always talk about, you know, how much electricity Bitcoin and other crypto mining, you know, costs and wastes, but it was developed by crypto miners to use less electricity. So it's an odd spin-off of that industry that makes it possible. Um, and, you know, I remember the first time I ever saw a water-cooled server. It was, it, it was running an 8086 chip right back in the day uh trust me it was not immersed in water <laughs> it was just air conditioned so this is a very cool technology and it'll be fun to see what they do since they're already putting entire data centers at the bottom of the ocean yeah see and, and i think technologically speaking the lesson here is that you can move silicon components back and forth at such a rapid rate that you can process trillions of ideas in a matter of seconds we, you know, Moore's Law still functions. We might be using slightly different timeframes, but computer systems do continue to accelerate in performance, but then they have to operate in the real world. 
and, and that, you know, to your point, Carl, so very many of the costs associated with data centers are not just the chip brain that's processing the information. It's the area where you host all of this. It's the heating and cooling. It is all of the electricity and making sure everything stays online. This is a very important environmental step ahead. If you can imagine a future where everything is centralized in cloud data centers, and we don't have, to your point on the previous topic, Carl, if we don't buy all these servers locally anymore and all of the world's compute goes into consolidated data centers, holy cow, that's going to be hot. And it's going to cost an unbelievable amount to cool that stuff back down and make sure the machines don't just melt themselves. I think this is super sci-fi application to the real world that I think is going to get adopted much faster than some of our other potentially science fiction innovations that we've seen in the industry. I think people are going to look around and go, Oh, that makes perfect sense. Well, the other, the other thing that's important is, is that their ability to do this at scale, I mean, it's expensive and it's hard. And this is where the, the, the reason, one of the reasons why the cloud is what it is, and I'm not having this discussion in a theoretical sense, I'm saying like they are pulling ahead in their ability to deliver computational power at scale at price points that are make it easy to consume you know this is a whole other level of sophistication in building this kind of te tech that is showing where the investment goes uh does it mean we have a lock-in to uh, several potential large providers that are the only way to do it yeah it might that may be the way this is all going we're going to need to make sure that they are regulated managed at the appropriate level but the flip side of that is we get cool stuff that drives down the cost and allows us to build systems on top of that that do other stuff. And so, well, and to the, the point of uh, Moore's Law, you know, Moore's Law doesn't say that you're always going to be able to have this chip on your desktop. Right. <laughs> so, 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 you know, when we get into like the, the seven nanometer chipsets, we're actually reaching the point where uh quantum physics is beginning to play a role in random errors and being able to cool those things down and control the environment is what's going to allow Moore's law to continue, right? Is that we're gonna have to have new environments in which to do this. You know, the next one obviously is outer space. So, you know, look, right. for, look for somebody to be launching a, a data center to, uh, to the cloud. Well, the real see, to, to the literal clouds, right? I, I, I think you're right. And Dave, the tipping point is coming because these innovations are not just creating interesting improvements in performance. As Microsoft's experiment with dropping stuff to the bottom of the ocean, uh, again, remember, that actually worked. And what they measured it by was that they had dramatically lower incidence of failure or error that required paying money to replace a physical device. Okay, the benefit here is not just speed of performance, it's financial. And when you get that kind of a rolling benefit of the more I consolidate, the more I cool, the cheaper it is, I believe this will be a tipping point in the industry where we will get to a point where you can no longer reasonably compete with local data centers because you simply can't afford to 
put stuff in very expensive liquid that keeps it cool. <laughs> That's reserved for the very expensive people. And we're all going to look around and go, cool, I, I would like to still host this stuff locally, but it's just not viable. Everything goes into one or two highly centralized clouds. I mean, I, the, the, the proliferation of things as a service and consuming things on individual services versus the individual pieces of it is the other bit that is enabled so much from them. I've got my own experiences the past weekend we were discussing before we started of launching of moving more of more of services for me and you know to higher and higher levels and it's like oh it's abstracted so far away from knowing any of the gear below it. <laughs> That's also allowing those who are offering the service to be invested in doing in a way that that delivers it best for them where me the customer doesn't have to worry about it i think this is super cool right but i also am the first one to go like yeah most providers are not going to be leveraging this besides the i can get computational power at a lower cost than i could before because they've been able to drive drive their own cost down and one of the themes that's emerged in the last couple of years that we've been doing this program is that there are things that only really large companies can afford to do, right? The, the, the stuff that's being done by, by SpaceX and, you know, stuff that's being done by Microsoft. I mean, this is stuff that you couldn't, if you, if you live to be 100, ever afford to do this even once. Right. Uh, let alone to just say, hey, here's some money, go play with this. See, and that's the thing, right? Don't try to outcompete them on cost when they have that radical advantage. Standardize on what is standard and then innovate on your local individual services that you provide around that standard commodity. That seems to be the mission statement of today's episode is uh, everybody in our business needs to find new and different ways to compete because the fact that you can provide a managed service cool, like good for you. The question is, how are you going to get that customer to choose you instead of all of the other people who can also do managed services? And therein lies the, the question of all time. How do we stay relevant and stay ahead of everybody else? We do it by listening to this podcast. Exactly. That's clearly <laughs> the solution. That is clearly the solution. And that will do it for episode 107 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It Podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.